is Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Nathan Haffel. Six rural towns that said no to marijuana may change course in an election Tuesday. Voters will decide next week whether to reverse bans and moratoria and approve the sale and production of cannabis products. New York Times national correspondent Jack Healy is based in Denver and is covering the story. He joins us via Skype. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Nathan. Jack, the votes on marijuana measures are happening in Buena Vista, Crestone, Hotchkiss, Julesburg, Poncha Springs, and Silvercliff. Your story on rural marijuana ballot measures focuses in particular on the western slope town of Hotchkiss. Can you describe Hotchkiss and, and tell us why the town is taking a second look at cannabis? Well, Hotchkiss is a small town tucked into the North Fork Valley. It's a beautiful little place of uh, organic farms and vineyards, um, but the economic uh, driver is a series of huge hulking coal mines uh, just up the valley. Um, you know, but those mines have been experiencing a huge seismic shift and sort of disintegration in the American coal industry, and that's put a lot of economic pressure on Hotchkiss. The town was losing out on a lot of jobs, on a lot of uh, traffic uh, that uh, it relied on to maintain Main Street businesses. And, you know, it was really kind of hitting a wall of hard times, like a lot of other coal mining towns all around the country. But I think the difference between uh, a West Virginia uh, coal mining town that's struggling or one in, in Wyoming that's struggling and one in Colorado is that uh, in Colorado, they have the option of looking at marijuana as an economic stimulus because we've legalized it. Right. And in the past, Hotchkiss residents voted in public hearings to continue bans on medical and recreational pot shops. And the first hearing was held after medical marijuana was approved statewide in 2000. Uh, the second hearing was in 2012 after state voters approved recreational pot. How did this measure to remove the bans get on the Hotchkiss ballot now? One of the uh, town's residents who uh, runs a kind of quirky little art gallery in an old church uh, decided to put it on the ballot because she thought this is this is a lady named uh, Mary Hockenberry, um, who, if you're ever driving through Hotchkiss, um, she runs a store that you, you would not expect to see in uh, a little small town like it. it. It's got all this this great kind of, you know, floridly colored cowboy art on the walls and, you know, hymnals that have been repurposed as, uh, as, as kind of uh, outsider art and stuff. But she started collecting signatures and uh, with the support of some friends was able to get it on the ballot. It was, um, you know, because Hotchkiss is such a small town, if it's got, you know, 900 people and, and even fewer registered voters, the way it works is, is that you don't need that many signatures to get something like on the ballot. I think it's like, you know, 5% of the number of people who voted in the last election. So it, it was a, a pretty small number. It wasn't like she needed to get the support of everyone in town. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they decided to, um, to, put it on the ballot uh, with this uh, current municipal election on the theory that it would be cheaper than, you know, holding a special referendum on it. Yeah. And we, you know, not everyone is on board with this. We reached Mayor Wendell Kuntz, who's who's not in favor of marijuana overall and doesn't think it's a good fit for Hotchkiss. We have a clip here of him. Personally, I'm not in favor of it. I don't see us as a society uh, in the here in the United States have done such a great job with alcohol. Uh, that we need to bring another product with similar properties onto the market. Uh, we all know that both alcohol and marijuana are addictive, and it's a gateway drug to other things. Um, certainly there is an opioid ep- epidemic in Colorado and in the United States. So I wouldn't like to see Hotchkiss add to that at all. Our town's motto is a friendliest town around. 
I just would not like to see that sullied. Jack, is this concern a common threat in Hotchkiss and other towns considering marijuana-proof measures? Yeah. I mean, I think this is kind of an evolving discussion that is you know, playing out in smaller towns around the state. Um, you know, each municipality has the power to have these debates and, and sort of consider the, the yes and no questions about it. And, and I, I really feel that you, you do hear these conversations, um, especially in small places where the main streets, you know, run a few blocks, um, you know, and, and there isn't a place, there aren't places where you can sort of tuck marijuana shops like in industrial areas, you know, for example, that are that are more out of the way of the main shopping drags, um, you know, or where you can put uh, big commercial grow facilities, um, sort of less developed areas that are away from the downtown cafe. There's this real kind of sense of, of the character of the town being at stake in, right. in these debates, which I mean, and I, I think that the mayor, you know, really articulated that, that, that side of it. Well, and Hotchkiss Mayor, you know, Kuntz also works in that area's dying coal industry, of course, which is a huge yeah. economic, you know, boost for that town. But he's he's not sold that marijuana is going to bring back uh, money to the to the town. Even the proponents don't believe this is a a windfall for the town in terms of tax revenue. Um, that's an unknown. We just it's we're tucked away way up here in the North Fork Valley. We just don't know what kind of retail market there is for it. Medical marijuana was legalized in Colorado 16 years ago. Recreational marijuana, of course, has been legal for four years. Are these towns looking for guidance from other Colorado communities that have established pot businesses? I mean, are they taking some comfort in, in what they see? Yeah, I mean, I think the certainly the people on the pro side are. Um, you know, they, they look at their neighbors. Like in Hotchkiss, there's a lot of talk about the small windfall that uh, Debec saw from marijuana or that Crested Butte uh, has seen from it. And they look at these places and they say, well, if, if this is going to be legal in Colorado, if we're going to sell it in Colorado or if we're going to sell it in towns uh, that are, you know, maybe, you know, 40, 50, 70 miles away, it, it's going to be moving through the state. We're going to be moving through our towns anyways. So why don't we capitalize on it and, uh, you know, collect some of the tax revenue and, and maybe uh, pick up a few jobs, um, you know, from it if it's going to be here anyways. And Kevin Bomber with the Colorado Municipal League predicts these ballot issues will have differing conclusions in towns with different values and personalities. Based on your reporting, how do you think these measures will fare in next week's municipal elections and why? Well, I think that he's absolutely right. Um, you know, the, the Hotchkiss measure, I think, is really running up against some, you know, pretty strong uh, cultural crosswinds that are represented by someone like the mayor. Um, you have a town like Buena Vista or a town like Crestone, where I think a marijuana sales measure has a little bit better chance. It maybe fits a bit more with the vibe and, and culture of that town. But yeah, I think the vote in Hotchkiss is going to be a real tough one. And uh, I think it's going to come down to a question of sort of who is more motivated to get out, the people who are worried about it or the people who think that it could actually bring in uh, some traffic and some, some more much-needed business. Jack Healy is a national correspondent for the New York Times based in Colorado. He reported on rural towns here where residents will vote Tuesday on ballot measures to allow the sale and production of marijuana. Up next, besides learning the language, there are more hurdles refugees face when they settle here. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. For many of the refugees that come to Colorado, their journey begins here in a classroom. 
This is a beginner's English course at the Emily Griffith Technical College in Denver. Refugees are trying to name the images placed in front of them by a volunteer, like grapes. Leela Timsona started in the same course when he came to Colorado from Bhutan nearly six years ago. We were evicted from Bhutan because of the ethnicity cleansing. We were not allowed to read our own language. We are forced to eat beef and pork and all those meats because we don't eat. And we are forced to leave the country. And he credits Emily Griffith for starting him off on the right track. This is real opportunity for refugee and immigrants. So I started my life, to be honest, you know, with you all. I started my life of English language from this school. So I always, you know, give back to this school. And when I have time, I come and visit. He's come a long way since then, too. He's active now in his community, serving on several city and neighborhood committees and organizations in Aurora. I was fully involved there. In each and every decision, they call me and they ask me, Leela, it's good for the immigrant and refugee communities. Then I approve that and okay, then they go forward. And I feel like I'm very proud to be here and also I'm involved, I'm respected and my word is hard now. Colorado's Refugee Services Program hopes for outcomes like Leela's, but it's been difficult to know how well refugees integrate into their communities across the state until now. A recently released study by the program tracked refugees for five years. Kit Tainter is the state refugee coordinator and joins us now, along with Ganga Upreti, another refugee from Bhutan. Welcome to the both of you. Thank Thank you you for having us. So, Kit, how important are these classes at Emily Griffith to incoming refugees? They're, they're very important. Um, it, as Leela said, it starts people off on the right track. Um, it's one of the first places that refugees interact with our school systems and with our educational systems and prepare themselves for work, um, as well as how to interact with their neighbors, um, the different systems that we have here in Denver. So, so based on your study, how well do refugees integrate into Colorado communities? Very well. Our study shows that refugees do have challenges when they first get here. Those challenges can include barriers in language and cultural knowledge or the ability to find employment. But over time, we find that they do find the, uh, the ability to learn more English um, and to integrate and into the workforce and to other areas of our community. Ganga, you, you came from Bhutan in the- early 2009. Uh, what were those first few months like? Uh, it was really uh, difficult when I first landed at Denver International Airport. But when I saw one of my friends already there to pick me up, I felt so glad that I already had someone there to help me out. And I also found my case manager from my resettlement agency. That made me excited. It was in the middle of the night. So a few months then after were a bit challenging. But as I started my schooling here in this country from Emily Griffith Opportunity School during that time, but now it's called Emily Griffith Technical College, that has helped me a lot to move forward in my life. And, and Kit, what if someone doesn't have the support like, like he had when he landed uh, you know, here in Colorado? Well, all refugees are met at the airport um, from a case manager, um, but sometimes people aren't quite as lucky as Ganga and having friends that are already here. So we try to find places where they can build community. And Emily Griffith and some of the other programs that we provide are meant to allow people to build bridges um, through the refugee community and also into the American community. So, Ganga, what was the hardest part of moving here? Of course, arriving is is probably very scary when you land, but what was one of the hardest parts of living here? Um, From my own perspective, uh, 
I don't see it as hard as it used to be for myself back mm. in my country. But the hardest part for people who do not have language capacity is language itself. And cultural barrier to some extent makes them difficult for living ahead. But slowly with integration every day, it is becoming more and more easy for each and every individual refugee being resettled in the state of Colorado. So is it just you that are here or, or, or are you a family members here I as well? do have whole of my family members here. So did your parents have similar uh, trouble when, with the language when they arrived here? Uh, it was a little uh, easier for them because I was already here and they joined me a few months later. So I was already equipped with the language. Plus, I knew all around the city. I was uh, okay with uh, getting in touch with uh, friends from America to help them better live their life once they are here. So it was not as difficult as uh, with people who did not have anyone else here before they arrived. Kit, is that something that you see there? Are there other challenges that refugees encounter these first few months that are similar to, to Gunga? Sure. So most of uh, refugee resettlement is actually family ties. So most most people are coming to join their families. Um, for those coming on their own, they do have you know additional barriers. I think a lot of times it's just learning how to navigate our systems. We have mm-hmm. very complicated transportation, schooling, health, and other type of systems that many people who are born here have challenges interacting with. And so I think that that can seem very overwhelming to folks. Um, that's why one of the things that our study found was what was one of the most important things was an aspect of social bridging. So meeting people outside of your community. And that speaks really highly of all the volunteers from the American community that help refugees learn these systems and interact with them on a daily basis to help overcome some of those barriers. And Kit, your study focused on refugees arriving from Mm -hmm. Bhutan, Burma, Somalia, and Iraq uh, between 2011 and 2012. Why focus on just these groups? I'm assuming there are other refugees arriving from other parts of the world. Those were the largest groups arriving at that time. So we knew it was going to be a five-year longitudinal study. So we wanted to get the largest cohort so that we could travel with them through their integration journey. And Ganga, what helped you get more involved in your community? What was it? What what made you step out of your community to, to see some people that have lived here all their life? Um, the most primary thing that I want to bring up here is uh, the problem that our community people were facing with city orientation, transportation, languages, and everything else uh-huh. like that. So basically, I myself, along with my brother and other community leaders, they stepped out from their home apartments, getting in touch with uh, different agencies here in the state of Colorado across Metro Denver. And we were lucky to have people like Keith join us to create some uh, community-based organizations that made us really easy for people to move them up and get them developed. Kit, when you talk about refugees that maybe didn't integrate so well, uh, a few groups stood out, stay-at-home mothers, women over 55 without work, and men older than 55, whether they had a job or not. What was challenging about those groups? So the refugee resettlement program is, is mainly set up around early employment. And so for these groups that may not be seeking employment because maybe you're a single mom with five kids and we all know how expensive daycare is, or maybe um, you're elderly and you're past the age in which you feel like you should be able to work, or maybe that's just beyond your physical abilities at this time, those people had a harder time getting out and into their communities. So we did find that those those, those folks had greater challenges in integrating. Um, that being said, the study did show that these two 
groups uh, added value to the community at large. So elderly parents were oftentimes caregivers for small children, mm. which enabled the parents to get out and work. And the single mothers were oftentimes babysitting neighbors' kids that at the same time were going out there and working um, in our community. So even though they were having challenges integrating, they still had value when we look at the refugee community as a whole. So how long does the Refugee Resettlement Program uh, work with refugees after they arrive? The the Refugee Resettlement Program is very front-loaded. Um, officially, with our funding, we can work with refugees for five years. But that being said, like a lot of public systems, human services systems, we don't have the resources to do what we would like to be able to do. So a lot of the services become very front-loaded within the first year. And Ganga, do you feel that, that more needs to be involved? Do you feel that, that there needs to be more support uh, for a longer periods of time? Uh, I think at this point, when I look back at myself, that five-year time frame for helping refugees is well enough for myself, but there may be some other people who may need help beyond five years. And we have uh, already seen those people are being helped after five years as well because we do not like completely restrict our help uh, for up to five years. If they do need further help after that, we are here and refugee resettlement agencies are there and people are out there from American societies to help them at any time. Thank you both so much for, for joining us today. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. Kit Tainter is the state refugee coordinator and Ganga Upreti is a refugee who moved to Denver in 2009. For a link to the study, visit cprnews.org. Still to come, a Cuban ballet dancer says the day he defected to the U.S. was the scariest moment of his life. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Cuban dancer Luis Valdez says ballet was his ticket out of Cuba. Valdez now performs with the Colorado Ballet. He started dancing in Cuba when he was nine years old and eventually defected to the United States. Cuba is known for producing some of the best ballet dancers in the world. Valdez says he watched with great interest when President Obama visited Cuba last week. Luis, welcome to the show. Thank you guys for having me. So was there anything specific that the president said during his visit that struck you? Oh, man. First... I have to tell you that I was so happy, and I, I cry when I listen to Obama's speech. So I'm pretty sure a lot of Cuban people cry. And everything he said, I was expecting him to say, like, it was really emotional, that moment for me. And for my Cuban people, I think we're going to have a change. I don't know how long it will take, but I think we're going to have it. And the people in Cuba, they know we're going to have it, and they have big hopes you started ballet around nine years old, right? Yes. And even then you realized you wanted to leave Cuba. Oh, uh, right away since I born, you know. When you, I was, I, I came from like really poor family, you know. Uh, in Cuba at that time you can see the difference when you have money and when you don't have money. I have friends that they had everything like, that was really sad growing up, you know. But at the end, I knew someday I would get there too, you know. And finally, that day came and here I am. And you knew leaving would help you. Oh, yeah. It's the only way. Yeah. Yeah. And so ballet dancing essentially became your, your ticket out, right? Yep. So describe, you know, kind of growing up in that and really was that your focus when you went into ballet dancing or was there also the love of, of dancing? Man, in Cuba, since you are a little kid, you are start knowing right away which are the way that you can get out of Cuba. Mm -hmm. And I'm, at that point, when I was growing, one of the easy ways to get out of Cuba was being an athlete of being an artist and I choose the artist and here I am thank God I choose and so it was pretty pretty quick when you realized that ballet dancing was your way out yeah 
You were part of the National Ballet of Cuba and decided to, to defect before the company embarked on a U.S. tour. You were in New York yeah. uh, when you ultimately defected uh, after your last performance. Take me back to that moment. What happened? Oh, man, that moment, I got goosebumps right now. That was, I think, the hardest moment of my life, the biggest decision that I ever made. I was shaking. I was so nervous that day. And thank God I made that decision. It changed my life, and it changed the life of my family in Cuba. And so what did you do? What, how did you defect? I had a connection already because the National Ballet of Cuba came touring also in 2001, and I already had a friend when I used to live in Cuba. We used to live together. And he defected on that tour. So as soon as I arrived to America, I knew I had to contact him that he would help me. And that's what I did. And that's what he did. And I went to the rock school in Philadelphia. And I stayed there for a, for a year. After that, I auditioned in New York for Cincinnati Ballet. And that's a ballet school. Right. And the Philadelphia one, the rock school, yes, is one of the biggest ballet schools here in the U.S. And after that, I went to the Cincinnati Ballet for a year. And after that, I auditioned for Colorado Ballet in 2005. Yeah. And man, and I think <laughs> that was another good decision I made in my life. So did you let anyone know before you left Cuba that you weren't coming back? The only person who knew was my mom because in Cuba you cannot trust anybody. In in that tour that I did, uh, five dancers defected. I was the last one. Oh, I see. Who five defect. dancers defected during that tour. Yes. And did you simply just leave the group, leave the hotel, and just say, I'm, I'm, "Yeah, I'm I was in America." You know, in America, Cuban are like well treated. Like Cuban love USA because we are treated really well in here and I just grab my stuff and walk away you know they cannot touch me because did anyone did anyone come to look at look for you from the from the Cuban government or eh, no 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 you are in USA so they cannot do anything so uh, once you 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 came to the US did you experience any kind of culture shock as you began to make make this place uh, your home not really not really because as a member of National Ballet of Cuba we travel a lot you know we don't make much but we have the privilege to travel around the world, you know. I, I, Cuba is known for music and dance. How is ballet viewed in Cuba versus here in the U.S.? It's kind of clumsy wording. I, I apologize. Oh, man. The culture in Cuba is like really big deal. I think, yeah, in, I think here in America, the culture is good, but I don't think the government treat it as well as, you know, a sport athlete or stuff like that. So thinking about the president's visit to Cuba and, and your memories of home there, um, do you think having the president come to the country will make a, a lasting change for people who you say live in poverty in, in many parts of the country? Yeah, you, you already started like seeing the changes, you know, the people are like... Not that scared as you used to be, you know, the people have more freedom of speech. It's still you do it and you go to jail, you know, but they are not that afraid anymore. They are more open. Like I think Obama's visit to Cuba brought a big hope to the country and the country loves Obama and I love Obama too. And you've been back to Cuba since you... you yes, were. I've been for time and I'm planning to go back again to visit my whole family in May. And and do you provide money to your family and things yeah, like that? Yeah, and that was that was the reason why I decided to defect 
by myself, the first member of my family. My family is really, really big. Uh-huh. And I was the first member of my family to decide like that, see, you know, like somebody need to help. And I decide to help. And my brother follow me. We are the only two out of the family living out of Cuba. Everybody else is still in Cuba. So do you love what you do in Colorado? Do you love dancing? Does that take you someplace? Uh... Man, it's been my entire life. I start, like you say, I start when I was nine years old. And yeah. now I'm 34. I will be 35 in November. And I'm still dancing. Thank God, you know. I mean, what does it feel like when you're dancing? Because you are, are, are a Cuban ballet dancer. You are known as, as someone who has defected to the U.S. How has that affected your, your, your love of ballet? Oh, no, it have not affect at all. Like, I, I change, and luckily, I had the pleasure to keep doing the same thing that I was doing in Cuba. You know, it wasn't a big change for me. I see. It was different, like, style of dance, different way of dance, but at the end, I already had the base. So it it wasn't that hard. When you go back to Cuba, what do you notice that's different now? We see, because last time I went was two years ago, and at that time, I guess Cuba and USA were already talking, but no one knew about it. So now is when I'm going to see the difference when I go in May. So let's see. You're going back home in May? Yeah, I'm going to visit my family in May. What are you looking forward to when you go back there? Oh, to see everything, to see that's changing. You know, I'm sure it haven't changed anything yet. This yeah. is it, too fast to start seeing the changes. But I'm pretty sure with the time, we will see the changes. I mean, are there any issues legally when you go back or problems for you when you, when you go uh, there? No, thank God I haven't had any problem, you know. I never had a problem in Cuba, so. So that's that. Yeah. So what is next for you here in Colorado? You're wrapping up your season. And yeah, today we are having the last show of the season. We are having that show in Lone Tree. It's the only show that we're having out of the Ellie Coggins in downtown. And that you can see that tonight, is that correct? And yeah, tonight at 8 o'clock will be the last show of the season. The director's choice is called. Thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Luis Valdez is a dancer with Colorado Ballet. He defected from Cuba in 2003, and like you just heard, he performs tonight with the Colorado Ballet. Who needs sight when you have vision? That's the motto of ultra-runner Jason Romero of Stapleton. His accomplishments are numerous, including winning the 50-mile San George Endurance Race in Puerto Rico in February. He beat the course record by more than an hour and a half, and he did it legally blind. This week, he's running even farther, much farther. He's in a 3,200-mile trek across the U.S. from L.A. to Boston. I spoke to him just before he left for California. Welcome to the program. It's good to be with you. So you haven't always been blind, right? You, you were diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa as a teenager, and that's a rare condition that is causing your retinas to deteriorate. What's it like going blind over such an extended period of time? I mean, you've said it's like having one foot in the sighted world and then another in the unseeing world. Yeah, it's been a really interesting process. I was diagnosed when I was 14, and I'm actually 45 right now, so 30 years later. Uh, when I was originally diagnosed, I was told I had probably about 15 years of sight left, and I would be lights out uh, blind at the age of 30. Hmm. Um, what's happened to me is... The fact that it's been such a slow deterioration, it really hasn't uh, been a dramatic effect. But as I've hit those different stages and milestones of blindness or not driving or having your full periphery gone, 
you know, those have been pretty dramatic to go through. And it's a, it's done a couple things for me. The positive is it's made me an extremely adaptable person. So when you're going blind, you have to constantly adapt and change how you do things in order to get things done and just continue to live life, to work, to take care of your children and to move forward. The negative side is that you hit some of these things that frankly, you think life's going perfectly fine. Then all of a sudden you have to stop driving. You're divorced, got three kids, a kid with special needs. And you know, from one day to the next, you figure you got to figure out how am I going to get groceries or get a birthday present for another child. And um, those things have made it basically a blessing and uh, a curse that's actually been a blessing. You told me when we spoke earlier that much of your life you've been masquerading as a sighted person. What do you mean by that? Uh, when I was 14, uh, in my left eye, I was legally blind. It was 2200. And uh, it's always been difficult for me to either read or in a work setting to be able to keep up with emails or in a school setting to be able to, I couldn't, I could never see what was on the chalkboard, but I was, I would always act like I could. Or when I was at a business meeting, for instance, I would act like I could recognize a person's face. And um, those were all efforts so that I would not have to go through a long winded conversation about, yeah, this degenerative eye condition. I'm ended up going blind, have other people potentially feel pity for me. Um, and I was doing all of that to try to make sure other people felt comfortable. And I was feeling uncomfortable in all those situations. Finally, you know, a couple of years ago, I came out of the closet and I just said, you know, I'm revealing my secret. I am legally blind. It's just who I am. And that was a huge weight that was lifted off of my shoulder because now I can just really be me. And when I enter into those situations, I don't need to be the one to feel uncomfortable. I can just come out and say, I am legally blind. You mentioned coming out of the closet, essentially. Is that when you maybe started carrying the cane that we see here? And The cane I started carrying actually a matter of months ago. And uh, it's, an identifica- it's for identification purposes only right now. I don't use it to tap around. I actually don't technically know how to use the thing as a blind person, only, my only means of getting around. Uh, I bring it out because that derails – the cane derails the conversation with a lot of folks of saying, I don't see well. Because if I just say I don't see well, but I'm looking at you, my eyes are tracking, they think either I'm playing with you or trying to be a a pain in the butt uh, or something like that. Like a perfect example is when you go to a fast food restaurant, Uh I can never see the menu. So I always have to ask the cashier to read to me. And inevitably, they hand me a smaller print uh, version of the menu. I'm like, no, really, I can't see. Can you read it to me? And either the person's really helpful and they just start reading or the person looks at me like, I'm trying to pull their leg and why am I being such a pain in the neck? When I have the cane and I go through that exact same situation, I say, I can't see that up there and I have a cane. They turn around and they read and they're extremely helpful. So that's been a huge piece. With running, you know, I brought a cane out for the first time ever in public when I went to run the Badwater Ultra Marathon in Death Valley this past summer. And I went out to the start line with my cane as a proud blind person. And that was very emotional and difficult for me. Um, I did not end up running with it the whole time, but it was important to me to go out there to actually do that because that was like a stepping across the threshold for me and saying, you know, I really, this is part of who I am. Either you're going to accept me or you're not going to accept me. And everybody there accepted me. It was was wonderful because at Badwater, just being invited to do it is amazing. You have all these amazing runners from all over the world. It's a field of only a hundred people. And then what ended up happening, winners of this race were coming up to me afterward and saying, it is so special to have you at this race and doing what you do. You know, that's when I realized that, you know, that cane has tremendous power. Instead of it being a, a symbol of being ashamed, um, it's a symbol of power. And it's a wonderful thing that I can embrace it now, which I wasn't able to do before. 
What exactly do you see? Like, what are you looking at right now if you look at me in a sense? Sure. So right now, uh, what I have is I have tunnel vision, so I don't have any peripheral vision. So if you cupped your hands to maybe like have a two-inch circle and put both those right in front of you, that's what I see. I see directly through there. So I don't see anything out to the side or coming. I see what's directly in front of me. That continues to deteriorate. So right now, it's say like the inside of toilet paper cartons, Uh and it will decrease to where it's like a straw and then a pinprick, and then presumably it goes lights out. That's as your basically your retina degenerates. And then within that area where I do have light perception, I see 2,200 to 2,400, depending on what, uh, how rested I am. So what that means is a person with 20-20 vision, what they can see at 200 feet I would have to walk up to 20 feet to see that same size image. I see. And then the other thing that I have too is night blindness. So my rods and cones don't pick up uh, light that well. So when the lights go out, then I look more like a traditional, quote, blind person. I am able to see like really bright things like, for instance, a light or a car headlight, but I would not be able to see what it's actually illuminating outside of that area. Uh, so that definitely has to pose some logistical challenges when you're running, especially over long distances and, and courses that you've never seen before. How do you do that? How you do that is basically you have a mindset that regardless of what you encounter, you will overcome. Hmm. Trails uh, present a different set of challenges than road running presents. Trails, you have rocks, roots, uneven surfaces, a lot of, you know, trees you can run into, branches sticking out, uh, mountains you can fall down. <laughs> so you have all those barrels. Right. And then on, and, and you use certain strategies. I use headlamps. I use guides. I use trekking poles. I use my sense of hearing a lot to be able to kind of tell where I'm at. My sense of smell is uh, heightened. So I, you know, remember things that way. On the road, you have other perils. Cars are a big peril. (laughs) And I could see how that could be really, really scary with these cars and and the headlights and driving past. I mean, you're embarking on this massive uh, uh, trek across the U.S. Aren't you scared you're going to be on open roads uh, alone? It's concerning. It is scary. I've been hit by cars. Now I'm up to seven times. Wait, wait. You've been hit by cars seven times? Sure. You end up on the the hood or on the... Uh, the trunk of a car and you kind of jump, tuck, roll, and then you end up in the street. The, the important thing where you're getting hit by a car is not to plant your foot because then your knee will get hurt. Now, that's that's regardless <laughs> if, you're, if you're sighted or not sighted. I mean, that, 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 that's, a, that's an adaptation piece. And with this journey, absolutely, uh, it's a concern and it's a safety measure I need to take into consideration. I have three young children. I'm not planning on dying during this thing. I've had sponsors who now have created these LED light vests that are in, insanely uh, reflective, visible lighting, blinking, flashing. The other thing I've done is with all of my road running and my road training, you got to move off. And I use my my hearing and my sight, and I'm always airing on the side of uh, safety. So on some of these roads that we'll be on over here, they're state roads, and there's maybe you know no shoulder. Maybe the the paint is right against where the asphalt leaves off. And if, frankly, if there's an oncoming car, I'm getting way off to the side, whatever mm. it is, stopping, moving, because this is about, a, you know, this, this is not a race where a course is blocked off and you may have police you know, watching out for you. I never see anything as insurmountable or an issue that basically will stop me from trying to trying to run or trying to do anything. You picked up running young in life. You had your first marathon in 1993. How did you actually get into running? What drew you to that? 
So I have a step-uncle, Ted Epstein, and some people may know him. He's here in Denver. And he started running about age 50. When I was a teenager, my stepfather, Fred Epstein, uh, told me one afternoon, he's like, let's go up and see my, my brother. He's running a race in Boulder. So we went up to the CU Fieldhouse up in Boulder, and that's an indoor eighth-mile track. Uh-huh. I remember we walked into the room, and I was expecting to see a bunch of people and cheering. There was one person going around this track, and there was a tent in the middle of the track. I was like, is that Uncle Ted? And it was Uncle Ted, and he was doing a self-supported six-day race around uh-huh. a one-eighth-mile track. And he would go eight hours, then rest an hour in the tent, go eight hours, rest an hour. And I saw him on his sixth day, and I was just, my jaw dropped to the floor. I walked a couple laps with him. He couldn't talk. His feet had swelled up like four or five sizes. It was, it was unbelievable to see. I just saw that anything was possible. And he's the one who inspired me to run that first marathon in 1993 because I said, I saw Uncle Ted do it. I want to do what he did. You're tuned to Colorado Matters. I'm Nathan Heffel. Let's take a break, then return to our conversation with ultra runner Jason Romero, who is legally blind. He's on a 3,200-mile run across the United States. This is Colorado Public Radio News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Let's get back to our conversation with ultra runner Jason Romero. He's legally blind and is about eight days into his attempt to run 3,200 miles solo across the U.S. from Los Angeles to Boston. I spoke to him late last month. Jason, you completed the Leadville 100 trail run three times recently. You also hold the world records for the 100-mile, 24-hour, 48-hour, and 72-hour runs for visually impaired athletes, and were part of the U.S. Paralympic team. If you weren't blind, would running still be such a huge part of your life? I think running would be a huge part of my life, but I don't think I'd probably have the opportunity to be sitting here and talking to you. I've always increased my running just to question myself and see where I can go. Running is just kind of who I am. Is that what inspired you to do this cross-country run then? Was the fact that you are a a somewhat of unique person who's able to to run long distances but are also legally blind? Frankly, I really don't want to do this. Who would want to leave their kids and and, uh, go out and suffer for over two months? Uh, I'm doing this because, frankly, I believe that I have this calling. And for some reason, I'm being called to do it. uh, And I'm doing it. Uh, basically 100% out of blind faith that this is something I'm supposed to do. And I've dedicated a year and a half to doing that. And it is truly a 100% leap of faith. When I came out of the closet, I encountered all these issues that blind people face, like a 70% unemployment rate, 66% obesity rate, uh, a depression rate, two times the rate of the general population. You know, I, I am unemployed. I have been depressed. And those are related to blindness. I figured what better way than to raise awareness for these issues, partner with a charity organization, and be able to have some good come out of this run. You said on your website that you were involuntarily retired due to your blindness. Uh, You worked in high-level positions with General Electric and Western Union. Uh, What do you mean by involuntarily retired? I, I told you before, I came out of the closet really as a blind person. Since that time, I've applied for a variety of different jobs, and I have a very, uh, what I would consider a strong resume. And uh, I don't get past a phone screen interview. A lot of times I'm not even getting called back. And I'm not sure what that is or or why that is. And it may be another reason, too. Maybe I'm not supposed to have a job right now because I'm supposed to run across America. And after this happens, maybe something else opens up. Um, But right now, you know, the fact is I made a lot of money before. And for the last two years, I've been extremely humbled. I live on uh, disability and I raise three kids and I, I know how to budget. I've had the benefit of being able to accumulate some savings. 
But I live a very, very different life than what I did before. And the thing that I realize when, you know, when I look at that 70% unemployment rate of blind people, you know, there's a lot of folks there that haven't had the opportunity to be able to amass the type of experience or savings that I have. Speaking and telling my story uh, is very, very important to a lot of people. So a lot of people have edged me on to begin a motivational speaking uh, endeavor, and that's what I've done. But a lot of that has been basically at schools and nonprofits, and um, we'll see where it goes. Jason, I want to get back now to the run that you're about to embark on, uh, 3,200 miles. Uh, I know when you're off-road running, you use trek poles that can help you in your racing. But is there another tool that you're using uh, to run such a long distance? Toolies phenomenally provide me with a cheetah chariot. And a cheetah chariot. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and it is a chariot. Uh, I don't use it for my baby, uh, but I do use it uh, to carry gear. And actually, I use that as a strategy to run at night. So what I've done is I've outfitted that with headlamps, super bright headlamps from another sponsor, Princeton Tech. So my stroller has headlamps. Uh, it also has uh, a variety of blinking lights on the wheels, on the backside. I put additional reflective tape, and I can throw my gear in there. And in the morning time, I run against traffic on the shoulder of the road with this stroller. And what it does is it provides something visible for oncoming traffic to see. But the other thing it does is it provides additional points of balance for me. For instance, when I do trip and fall, instead of holding trekking poles, I'm holding the stroller, and I don't necessarily go all the way down. I can balance out my body weight on the stroller. The other thing it does is I'm always in between the wheelbase. So if one of the wheels starts to go off the road or onto the onto a dirt path or a grass area, I can feel that and I can hear the also road also that I can hear the tire on that type of surface. So then I know I need to readjust to where I'm going. So it's been a phenomenal tool to use and that's something that just came into my arsenal, frankly, a month and a half ago when Thule gave me this thing. This is like over a five hundred dollar piece of equipment that frankly otherwise there's no way I could have afforded. Are you truly going to be alone on this trek across the country? Is there going to be someone with you? There must be someone with you. My mother has gone with me. Uh, She's crewed me through all of my races. So we have my brother's minivan taking out the second row of seats. We have the third row of seats in there. We're packing it right now. Uh, She's going to go with me basically 3,200 miles and drive a mile or two ahead of me, feed me, water me, and then drive another mile or two, and we'll just keep playing leapfrog that way. You've mentioned that that this journey is almost like a calling. Does faith play a huge part in in your life and, 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 you know, choosing to do something like this? I really found faith or faith found me probably about five years ago in that point in time. uh, I just said I wanted to dedicate the next half of my life to doing whatever God wants me to do. And I always wanted a letter to arrive in the mail saying, Jason, this is God. I want you to do this. Never happened that way. Um, But yeah, I, I talked about this calling, and I was volunteering at a shelter, doing my little volunteer job, helping people get in the showers. And all of a sudden, I had this overwhelming feeling that I was going to run across America. And you know, it scared me because it was like I knew this was going to happen. And I texted my mom. I said, I'm going to run across America. Huh. And she responded back in five seconds and said, I'm in. And like I said, it's not something that, frankly, from a personal desire, I want to do because I know how much pain there's going to be. I've done training kind of simulating this. And it's it's going to be extremely difficult. But I know there's I'm supposed to do this and there's something bigger. And it's it's really faith. It's believing in that something that, frankly, you can't see, touch, or smell, but knowing that you're supposed to do it. 64 days of running. What do you think about all that time? I know during races, people say they get into this zone, this, this zen. You've got 64 days of that. 
What's going to be going through your mind as you as you move across the country? That, that is an absolutely overwhelming question to think about right now. Every time I think about what's about to happen from that perspective, I get scared. I don't want to show up at Santa Monica Pier. If I'm in the middle of day two and I start thinking, I got two more months of this, it will be crushing. What I have to do is I have to stay very present and just figure out how you're going to get through that day and also ensure that I enjoy that day and that I'm doing and taking advantage of every opportunity I have, whether that's to be with my mom and to share a moment with her or to have somebody run beside me and have them tell me about what's going on and share some different difficulties that I've had and maybe that can help them or we can build a friendship. Whatever that is, I know I just have to stay present for, because for these next two months or so, I'm supposed to do something. You know, running, you're always saying, you know, being in the moment and being there. Does it provide a, a respite from thinking about the fact that you are one day going to be fully blind? It has saved me from... Um, uh, consequences, I guess, of going blind, specifically uh, depression. I found myself in a pretty severe depression where I was laying in bed for three weeks and couldn't mm. move. Very difficult, couldn't take care of my kids. And when I went and saw, I saw counselors, I said, yeah, you are depressed. And I said, I'm going to find my way out of this through running. And I ran and ran and ran. And the psychologist ended up telling me, yeah, you know, actually what happens when you run and physically exercise, it helps to combat a lot of things uh, chemically that depression does to the body. Um, so I, I have used it in that way, but not necessarily as a respite for going blind. You know, the going blind piece is really more of a grieving process, just like anybody has anything going on in their hmm. life. Everybody has everything, right? We all have depression, ADD, or your dog died, or you got fired from your job, or, you know, somebody has something that they're dealing with. So it's kind of the grieving process and how you deal with that in a healthy and effective manner. And just frankly, uh, don't give up. And uh, the other thing that's been really neat, too, it's helped me to connect with a lot of people because, believe it or not, people want to help you when you have a special circumstance. That's not nothing I've something I've never really embraced or understood. But the more that I've been out here, the more I've had people reach out to me, say, I want to help you somehow. I don't even know how, but I want to help. And that's been a really special thing for me that, frankly, you know, kind of as a I may seem outgoing, but I am kind of shy. Uh, it's been really, really good for me. And I've made some really good friendships that way. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. Ultra runner Jason Romero lives in Denver's Stapleton neighborhood with his family. You can follow his journey across the U.S. in real time at visionrunusa.com. There's a link at cprnews.org. And that's our show for this Friday. Thanks to audio engineers Kara Schiff, Michael Hughes, and Matt Hers. Our Friday director is Stephanie Wolf. And our producers are Kareem Maddox, Nancy Laughlin, Andrea Dukakis, and Sam Brash. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook, and our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Of course, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter at Colorado Matters and CPR News. And join the Public Insight Network. Help connect your experiences to the news. Go to CPRnews.org and scroll down to share what you know. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend. <laughs>